Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter number 44. Man, what a blessing to get to be in the house of the Lord. And I appreciate the Lord meeting with us this morning. He's awful good to us. And uh, I'll tell you, imagine, listen, if we just let the Lord work in our hearts and lives like that every day, imagine what God could do in us. Isaiah chapter number 44. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 20. Isaiah chapter number 44. We'll begin in verse number 1. The Bible says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, thou Jeserin, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. They shall spring up as the grass, as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. And their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes and he marketh it out with the compass and maketh it after the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, With part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I'm warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my god. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see and their their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding, to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for what you did this morning. Thank you for meeting with us. Lord, you made all the difference. And our heart's desire tonight, Father, is that we might be as welcoming on this Sunday evening in our hearts and with our attitudes as welcoming of you as we were this morning. Yea, Lord, and even more so that we would give you greater room in our lives that you might work and that you might be pleased in our obedience to you. Lord, I pray you'd take the precious inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, wielded as your sword, as the sword of your Spirit, do a work in us for eternity and of eternal value. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person here, 
But I pray that you'd work in them that which brings you glory. And I pray that you'd have your will and way over these next few moments. Lord, I love you. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When we read in the Word of God in Isaiah chapter number 44, this passage begins sort of with two large portions or bold statements to frame what will be a rather lengthy discussion on the matter of idolatry. It begins in verse number 1. I won't take the time to read all of it, but I want you to notice in the early portion of this chapter that there is a declaration of God's proprietary divinity. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, look what he says in verse number 6. He says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. He reemphasizes this in verse 8. He says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it, ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. This passage begins by God sort of staking His claim on the human heart and declaring boldly that He is the only and the singular God. I believe that we have one God in three persons, the Trinity. I don't believe we have three gods. I don't believe in a pantheon of gods. Uh, we've been, me and my wife, we've been watching one of these shows where they take these crazy people and put them out in the wilderness and then they got to survive. You ever watch any of these shows? And uh, that used to be called living. Amen. But now people win millions of dollars just for doing that, just for getting out there and not dying from exposure or something. And they'll put these people out there. And one of the things that bothers me, every time they kill an animal, they always have these weird pagan rituals that they go through where they'll start talking to the animal. Oh, thank you, animal, for the sacrifice of your life and for what you're giving to me. I've always laughed when I looked at that and thought, well, I wonder what the animal would say to that. I'm betting the animal didn't sign up for it. Amen. (laughs) And now everything they do is just touched with this pagan tone. They'll talk to the trees around them. They'll talk to the stones around them. And they act like they're really communing with nature. I tell you this, if they're communing with nature, nature ain't being so gentle and communing back with them. Amen. Half of them suckers just about die before they uh, medevac them out of there. And there's just always this weird pagan interaction uh, with uh, some of these people with nature. No, listen, hey, and even today, many Christians have sort of a neo-pagan perspective in their idea of who God is. But the Bible declares to us who God is. The Bible doesn't leave us wondering who God is. The Bible tells us His name. The Bible discloses His personality. The Bible reveals His desire and His ambitions and His design for us. And this passage begins by God saying boldly, I am God and there is none beside me. Allah is not God. Amen. Buddha is no God. You can study all the various Eastern mystical religions. Mary is not God. Amen. Uh, And all of these pretenders and all of these inventions of man's imagination are not God. God declares boldly his proprietary divinity. But then we find in verses 9 through 11 that there is a a shift away. He's been talking about who he is and stating boldly that he is the only true God, that there is none beside him, that they are altogether pretenders, fallacies, and fantasies. And now in verse number 9, he says this, they that make a graven image. Now, a graven image is Bible language for an idol. The Bible forbid man from making graven images and worshiping them. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. Their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. He asked this question, who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. So there's not only a declaration of his proprietary divinity, but there is a denunciation of the practice of idolatry. In ancient times, idolatry of the religious form was pervasive. 
Mankind, all except for those that have been shown the true light of the God of Israel, dwelt in pagan darkness. And uh, they all over the world would worship all various iterations and, uh, and, and imagined gods that they had concocted and that they had crafted. They would go and they would cut trees down in the forest and bring them home and whittle them into and carve them into various gods. They would cut stone out of the mountainside and with chisel and hammer form and fashion some semblance of a God that they could worship. They would dig silver and gold out of the earth and put it in the, in, in the refiner's fire and pour it out in molds and try to make some God that they might be satisfied. You know, in our current enlightened current year that we live in, it is very easy to look with cynicism and uh, with scoffing at this ancient form of idolatry. But can I tell you that idolatry has not gone away, friend? It has rather reinvented itself in modern forms that are just as pervasive and just as pernicious as Old Testament or ancient idolatry ever was. You see, what the Lord is condemning here is idolatry writ large. And we could define idolatry, particularly in this New Testament day of grace in the life of the believer, as elevating anything to the status equal to or above the person of Christ or elevating anything to the status equal to or above the place that God says it should occupy in our lives. I'll tell you this, there's people, hey, listen, some of us, we don't love certain things more than we love God, but we love those things more than God wants us to love those things. We, we wouldn't choose it above Christ, but we've let it have an outsized uh, influence in our life, and we've allowed it to have a control over us that is not healthy. We've allowed forms of idols to be erected and lifted up in our life that have drawn away our devotion towards the Lord. I think when we just sit down and, and catalog it, we could probably say that there are three predominant areas of modern idolatry. In other words, I'm looking at the lives of believers, people that know the Lord, that are saved by the grace of God. I don't think God is all that disturbed by the idolatry of the lost, because of course they are idolaters. But I think he's deeply disturbed by the idolatry of saved people, redeemed by the blood of Christ, bought by his death, I think he's deeply disturbed by that. And looking at the lives of the believer, it seems like there are three predominant areas of modern idolatry. I'd say the first is this. Our flesh can be an idol. You say, what do you mean, preacher, by our flesh? Well, we could say this. Our lusts or our desires can be an idol in our life. It is natural to have desires, to have ambitions, to have things that interest us and that we desire to come to pass in our life. But I think the vast majority of believers struggle with allowing those desires, those plans, those ambitions to take precedence over the will of God in our lives and those things become the point of worship in our life. Hey, listen, we all have a flesh. Uh, we all have desires, and I don't even want to conflate altogether the idea of the flesh being that which desires and craves things contrary to God with just simple ambitions in our life. But no matter which we're speaking of, I would say this, uh, God permits us to have certain things we long for and desire in life, but never should those things carry more weight than what God says that they should. We could describe it as this, people living for self. I'll do what I want, I'll live the way I want. All that matters is that I get what I want and that I live the life that I plan and the life that I desire. We live with a world uh, that is drunk on the notion of self-gratification. I'm going to live my life my way and do what I please, even if it hair-lips God in heaven. So I would say this, the number one area is our flesh. But then there's a second area, and I would say this, not only our flesh can be an idol, but our finances can be an idol. We can allow, if you want another way to say it, we could say not only our lust, but our labor can become an idol in our life. Now, labor has a nobility born into it, built into it, designed by God. There's nothing wrong with work. Whenever God created Adam and Eve, He put them in a garden and told them to tend it. Not because it wouldn't grow without them, but because they wouldn't grow without doing that. And work has a nobility, a holistic nature, a healthy uh, quality to it. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. The Bible is perfectly clear in the New Testament that work is sanctioned of God. The Bible says if a man won't work, he should not eat. 
And the Bible has a very, very positive perspective on work. But I will tell you this. It is possible, even with that most noble of endeavors, to create in it a God that pushes out the influence and will and authority of Christ in our life. I've known a great many. It got quiet in here. You all right? I've known a great many people. Their job became more important to them than the house of God. Their job became, listen, we all find ourselves in situations we have to do things that we do not desire. And you say, well, preacher, you know, I mean, what if I find myself in that situation? You'd be praying and working to get out of that situation. Hey, listen, you don't have to walk. You all right tonight? You don't have to walk around with your head hung low. You just need to be walking in the right direction towards getting that resolved in your life. We used to always, I was a youth pastor, believe it or not. I used to be young and skinny and had hair and all those things. And I was a youth pastor at one time. And I can't tell you the numbers of young people that would come to me. And they would say it was time for them to get a job. And they would, that was back when young people got jobs. And they would come to me and they, they would say, they'd say, Brother Toby, I, I, I need to get a job. And I'm going, I'm going to apply to the grocery store. I'm going to apply down to McDonald's or wherever, down to Crystal's. And, and they would come to me and they would say, uh, I'm going to apply. I want you to pray for me. And I'd sit them down and I'd tell them, I'd say, now listen, young person, I want you to understand something. When you get that job, they will tell you flat out, you will never have to work a Sunday. You'll never have to work a Wednesday. They'll tell you that. Every one of them will tell you that. And for about two weeks, that'll be the case. And then all of a sudden, your manager's going to come to you and, and, and they're going to say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, so-and-so sick. This happened, this happened, this happened. Just this one time. And I said, when they come to you and tell, tell you that, you need to say, now, listen, when I took this job, you promised me that would not be the case. You agreed to that, and I'm not going to allow you to go back on that. Because I told them, I said, young person, if you do it once, they'll come to you again and again and again and again. And I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be ugly in how I say this, but none of these kids, they, they weren't, they weren't operating on people's brains. They were stocking shelves at grocery stores. If the food city won't respect your relationship with God, go down to the Ingles. If the McDonald's won't do it, go to the Hardee's. And without fail, these young people would come back and they would always report to me the same thing that it happened exactly in that way. Almost like us adults have been through some things before and, and, and I'd always tell them, hey, listen, I, I'm not saying you can't get an ox out of a ditch, but they want your ox to live in that ditch. And in our lives, I would say this, that certainly we all find ourselves in situations where sometimes we must, uh, against our desire and wishes, uh, out of respect and reverence for commitments we've made, we sometimes may find ourselves having to do things we wish we didn't have to. Uh, but we ought to always be working and striving and laboring towards getting the balance of that right in our lives. Because I'll tell you this, it is a great danger that we allow our work and our labor to, come an, to become an idol in our life, to draw our affection and our allegiance and our attention away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there are people that you know that I know that we could describe, we could call by name, that they used to be faithful to the house of God. Then they prioritize the overtime. They prioritize the special assignments. They prioritize the vacation money. They prioritize the whatever it might have been. And that became the priority in their life. And today their life is in shambles because they made an idol out of their finances. I would say our flesh, our lusts, our finances and our labor But then I think there's a third area that is very common, and that is our family and friends can become an idol. We could say this, our loved ones, relationships that God's blessed us with that are not wrong in and of themselves, but we can allow them to become idols in our life such that we care more about those things than we do about pleasing God. Can I ask you a simple question? Do you care more about pleasing God than you do about pleasing any other human being walking the face of the earth? Is it more important to you that He be pleased with your life Can you honestly look at the decisions you've made in your life and are making in your life and say, I'm not making this to please them, but because I believe it's the will of God and I believe it's consecrated of God, I believe it's what He desires and I want Him to have the best of my life. I understand the temptation and the pastoral ministry is fraught with relationships. That's what it is. You have friends and you have members and people that you love and people that you care about. And you are constantly, constantly pressured to prioritize some person, their feelings, their interests above the heart and mind of God. Maybe as pastors that makes us callous. Maybe as pastors that makes us cavalier or cynical. But I do believe that there is great danger in our life of allowing things that in and of themselves are not wrong. But we begin to prioritize them above Christ or above the place that Christ desires for us. And yes, that can include your family as well. You ought to love the Lord more than you love your family. The Bible says that our love of Him ought to be so deep, so abiding, and so intense 
that by comparison it makes our love of our family seem hate. It's what the Lord meant when He said, except a man hate his father and hate his mother, he cannot be my disciple. He was not invoking us to malice against anyone, but He was saying, you ought to love me so deeply that when people look at the love that you have for me, they think that you don't care about them because of how much you care about me. Say, preacher, I don't even, I can't even imagine. Give me an example. Well, every missionary on a mission field has exhibited that sort of devotion. People would look at the choice they've made and they'd say, well, hey amen, it's not care very much about their family to leave and go all the way across the world. But that's not it. You've missed it. They love their family deeply. It's just they love the Lord more. And that should be true not just for the missionary out on some foreign field, but it should be true for every believer in our life. There ought to be things that if our family makes us choose between them and the Lord, we make abundantly clear, I choose the Lord. I'm not mad at you. I don't hate you. I want you to do right and live right. And I want you to follow the Lord too. But if you make me choose between you and God, it is no contest. I always choose the Lord. You say, well, preacher, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do that. Then you're an idolater. Then you're an idolater. That's what the Bible teaches. You're an idolater. And you say, well, preacher, what can I do about that? Well, you ought to repent of it. And you ought to ask the Lord for the strength and the boldness to put the Lord first in your life. So in this passage, the Lord has set the terms for the conversation. But I want you to notice a phrase that's used down in verse number 20. Because I'm going to use it as a title as we explore this passage tonight. The Lord has described the whole process of idolatry, the folly of idolatry, the effect of idolatry. And he comes down to verse number 20. And this is his final designation. This is his summary of the life of an idolater. He says this in verse number 20. He feedeth on ashes. I want to preach to you on that thought tonight. He feedeth on ashes. When we allow anything to take the place of Christ in our life, we're feeding on ashes. We think of the ashes of a fire and it is literally that which has been expended, that which is left over, the residue of what was once profitable and what was once had warmth and had benefit and had function and purpose and value. But now there is nothing left and nothing desirable to be drawn out of those ashes that remain. And the Lord, when He looks at the man practicing idolatry, He looks at him investing his life in things that may have had a value and may have had a purpose, but because of the place that they have been given, they have instead been robbed of their value and function and purpose, and they hold nothing but bitterness and emptiness for the person that is pursuing them. You know, one of the great tragedies of idolatry is it doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work. We pursue those things because we think they'll satisfy us, but it's not true. Listen, you can work a million hours a week and lay up money in the bank till you don't even know how many zeros are behind the ones and it won't make you happy. You can satisfy every desire that your flesh has. You can live a life of utter depravity and degeneracy where you don't deny yourself a single thing. Hey, that's what Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, I didn't hold any pleasant thing back from me. He said, I lived life up. I enjoyed it. I I scratched every itch. I yielded to every desire. And he said, it's altogether vanity. Didn't give me anything in life. We can make an idol out of our friends, our family, and probably that is the most noble form of idolatry, but whatever nobility it may have, it's still idolatry. And we can try to make that the focus of our life. And here's what we'll find. We'll find that we'll become slaves and fools to the whims of those that we love. Can I tell you, there's worse things in life than taking a stand. There's worse things in life than offending somebody. There's worse things in life than having people get angry at you. And one of the worst things is become a fool dancing to the tune of some other person's worldview and their desires in their life because we have so idolized their love, so deified their love, so sanctified their love in our life that we do anything to retain it, even violating the Lord and His Word, that we might keep them placated so that they'll continue to be a part of our life. 
It's feeding on ashes, the Lord said. And I want you to notice a few simple thoughts with it and we'll be done. Notice this passage of Scripture and let's walk through what the Lord does in denouncing idolatry. Look with me at verse number 12. We find that in verses 12 and 13 and 14, God begins by describing the making of the idol. And we'll see how this parallels to modern idolatry. Verse number 12 says this, The smith, in other words, the blacksmith or the metallurgic uh, worker, the person that 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 takes those things and and fashions them. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Now, the Lord has in view here the blacksmith that has been commissioned to make one of these little trinkets and one of these little idols. And he sees him laboring away at the forge and at the anvil. And he notices something as he beholds this man, that as this man works, he is hungry and his strength faileth. As he works, the sweat pours out from him. He drinketh no water, and he is faint. And here's what the Lord says about this idol that this man is making. He says this, that every idol that is made, number one, it is formed by man. So what are you getting at, preacher? Well, the Lord says, I want you to notice something about that fellow that's making that idol. He bleeds, and he sweats, and he hurts, and he grows weary, and he is a human being. And yet he's purporting to make a God that could somehow satisfy his life. You know, the problem with all forms of idolatry, be it modern idolatry of the flesh or finances or family, or be it ancient idolatry or be it neo-pagan idolatry as is common in Catholicism and in, in much Eastern mysticism, whatever the form of paganism it is, it is all, as Paul denounces in the book of Acts, designed and crafted by art and man's imagination. And here is just a basic uh, puzzle, uh, logic puzzle. You ready? If man creates it, it can't be any greater than man himself is. If man creates it, it can't be any greater than man himself is. And you know the problem with looking to those other things other than Christ in your life and seeking for them to satisfy you is that all of them come and are dispensed from your energy and your hand. Don't you think if it was within you to provide peace in your life, you could do that without having to go through the weird religious exercise to do so? But the fact is, you can't have peace in and of yourself. You can't have happiness in and of yourself. You can't have contentment in and of yourself. And it doesn't matter the degree or or the uh, interest of the pageantry that you carry out in your life. All those things all together will uh, never satisfy because it's not things of this world that satisfy, but it's heavenly things. It's not temporal things. It's eternal things. And God looks at this idolater and He looks at this blacksmith and He says, don't they realize that it's just a human being like anyone else that's making this idol? He points to the fact, number one, that it is formed by man. But look at verse 13. He now looks at the carpenter, the woodworker, and he says, The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, his measuring rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with the compass. I want you to notice this next phrase. And maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man. Why did he do that? That it may remain in the house. He notices something about all these idols that this idolater is creating. He's noticing this. They all tend to look like humans. It's interesting when you study ancient forms of idolatry, how often that they would try to take animals and beasts and give to them human attributes. By the way, that's still being practiced today in society. Uh, At some of the highest forms of government, there's people that practice uh, in that degeneracy and derangement of trying to play act as animals and trying to engage in weird neo-pagan rituals uh, that uh, have their their roots back in, in dark times and dark ages. But he notices that in all that ancient pagan idolatry, they always wanted to take these beasts and creatures and worship them, but they couldn't help but give to them the attributes and the visage of mankind. In other words, he's pointing to the fact that no matter how they may try, they always seem to make these idols after their own image. Don't you think that if mankind is to be gratified and satisfied by something in his life, it must be something bigger than himself and outside of himself. 
But the funny thing about all forms of idolatry, at the end of the day, we may think we're worshiping those things, but it's really simply self-worship after all. It's always made in our image and with our visage. Uh, And you say, well, preacher, God made us in His image. Yeah, but He's God. And what does that say about us when we are crafting and constructing our life so that we, our desires, our ambitions, our plans are placed upon the throne of God? It does say this, that we must think that we ourselves are God or we would not be doing that. You notice this, that at the end of the day, all these idols they made, they always sort of look like themselves. They always sort of carried the image of man. And then he says this in verse 14. He says, He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He's seeing this uh, carpenter, this woodworker, out in the forest, cutting down trees that he has carefully planted and planned that he might be able to build and craft these idols. And then he says this, He planteth an ash, an ash tree, and the rain doth nourish it. Isn't that interesting? Here's this man. He is planting the beginnings of the God that he's going to make himself subject to. And he doesn't even realize that the material that he needs to make the God that he's going to create could not even grow were there not a greater God in heaven dropping rain upon it. You know, the problem with idolatry it's formed by man. It's, it's sourced in mankind. It's fashioned after man. It is, it is created in man's image, but it is focused on man. It misses who we are created for and all the blessings in our life who created and gave them to us in the first place. Think of the ignorance of this man who is planting a tree that he will one day worship as God. He's the creator of that process, but he doesn't even see that one day he'll subjugate himself as the creation of that tree itself. But even deeper than that, he doesn't recognize that rain's falling from heaven from a benevolent, long-suffering, patient God who is blessing and favoring His life, though He does not deserve it. And you know what is so disgusting about idolatry is that often it takes the blessings of God and carves out of them idols that draw our heart away from Him. I remember a few years ago when Barack Obama was the President of the United States, there was a big, and I've mentioned this several times from the pulpit, uh, there was the there was big controversy because uh, he began to to parrot Marxist ideologies because uh, he was a Marxist, yeah, and he's still a Marxist, and uh, he he began to say things like, well, uh, you know, if you've got a business, you didn't build that business, uh, and he said the reason behind this was because, well, you know, the government built the roads. And uh wonder where the government got the tax money to build. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, but they, he said, well, the government built the roads and the government built the infrastructure and the government did all these things. And so he, he would say, you didn't build that. The government helped you build that. Textbook classic. I mean, it, it could be falling off the lips of Chairman Mao. I mean, it's it's classic Marxist ideology. But people got upset because they said, well, now, wait a minute, Mr. President, Mr. Barack Hussein Obama, I did build that. I did labor and I did build that. And they took offense at the fact that he was suggesting that their work was not their own because they had availed themselves of certain benefits and blessings of the government. You say, preacher, is that a problem? Well, when it's the government, it is. You know why people got so offended about it? Because that man was talking like he was a god. He does believe he is a god. I mean, still, as the president of the United States, he still thinks he's a god. And I didn't misspeak. And, uh, you know, the problem is he was speaking the language of God himself. Here in this passage, God's using language very similar to it. You say, preacher, don't that offend you? No, because he's God. He does make it rain. Hey, he, he, do, he does give us air to breathe. He does give us water to, to drink. He does give us food to eat. He does make the sun rise in the morning. And the great tragedy and disgrace of idolatry is it often takes those very blessings of God and weaponizes them against devotion towards the Lord and makes God compete with His blessings in our hearts. Here, the Lord points to idolatry and His indictment number one against it is in the making of the idol. I want you to notice verse number 15, because the Lord just begins to point out the madness of the idol. 
We could say this, that the Lord begins to mock and make fun of how silly it is that a man would be an idolater. And I'll tell you that it's still silly for a man to be an idolater. Even if it's your finances, even if it's your family, even if it's your fleshly desires, it's still silly for a man to be an idolater. Why? Well, for the same reasons that was here in our text. Verse 15, the Bible says this, Then shall it be... Now, he's described this this carpenter who's gone out into the woods and he's cut down this tree, he's planted another in its place. What winds up happening to that tree? Well, he says, Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. The image is of the carpenter or the woodsman going out into the woods and cutting down this tree. I don't know. I've not done a lot of cutting down trees. We used to do it some when I was little, and we'd bust firewood and different things. Occasionally when we was little, we didn't have to do a lot of it, but but we did some of it. And I've been more than one occasion out in the woods with Dad whenever we was going out and cutting down trees and getting firewood in. And you can imagine this man that goes out, and he cuts this tree down, and he, he, he cuts it up, and he begins to bust it into quarters, and he says to himself, now this is going to be for the for the warming fire. And this is going to be for the cook fire. And this we're going to make a God out of that we're going to fall down and worship. (laughs) He points to the madness of the process that it involves. And he says, don't you see that you're taking something that was meant for the mastery of and consumption of mankind, for a blessing from God, that it might be the means and, and, and the substance of them living a life of, of pleasure and joy before the Lord, to honor Him and to please Him and to be used by Him to honor the Lord. And you are taking that and using it for literally the worst possible purpose that a man could imagine. He's saying, don't you see that this very thing, he's saying you'd be better off to throw it in the cook fire. You'd be better off to throw it in the warming fire, in the firing place. But instead, you're taking this and making an idol out of it in your life. It's funny that we might, as uh, God's creatures and His creation, take the very things that God's blessed us with and make the conscious decision to make it the most important thing in our life. Let me tell you something. God's blessed me with some amazing things in my life. And my life is an embarrassment of the riches of God's grace. But how dare I or how dare you ever look at those things that God has given? And they are all a means to us being able to serve him in a greater capacity. Understand that. God didn't give you the job he gave you so that you could have more money in the bank account. God doesn't have that much uh, faith in the good credit of, of the U.S. monetary system. God doesn't have God. Hey, listen, you may believe in the Fed, but God doesn't. Amen. <laughs> so how do you know that? Well, because he he's the one. Well, mm, you can just tell God's invested in commodities, amen? I mean, the street is made of gold, amen? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's invested in commodities, not fiat currency. Uh, he didn't give you that job so that you could just lay up money in a bank. He didn't give you that job so that you could just go and, and, and buy a bigger car, a nicer car, a bigger boat, or better clothes, whatever it might be. And I don't begrudge you having any of those things. But I want you to understand that if you take the blessings of God and allow it to displace God in your heart, you've missed the very reason that God has blessed you for. I think he, he points to the madness of the process that it involves. Number two, he points to the madness of the provision that he ignores. He says this, he burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. Now this phrase, I have seen the fire, implies more than just that he's saying there's a fire here in our shelter, in our home. What he's saying is that he is worshiping that which the wood has given him. That he is speaking of the fire as being the blessing and benefit and benevolence of the wood that will go to make the idol that he will worship. When he says, I've seen the fire, he's speaking of it as a religious experience that he has had. And all the while he's missing the fact that it's God that gave him the flesh to roast. It's God that gave him the the wood to burn in the fire. It's God that has blessed him with the resources to enjoy the life that he has. He has missed that God has provided all these things. God does not bless you 
with things so that you'll turn your gaze off of Him, but rather that you'll turn your eyes upon Him. God doesn't bless you so that you don't have to talk about Him. God blesses you so you will talk about Him. He doesn't bless you so that you don't have to worry. He blesses you that you might rejoice in His faithfulness. And the problem with idolatry, even of the modern form, is it misses that it's God that's blessed us with all these things. And the purpose of that blessing was not that we might recline back in our own self-reliance and say, aha, I've seen the fire, I'm warm, I've got everything I need, but that we might look towards heaven and bless the Lord and say, I have all this because God has been good to me. I see that the madness, it's mad in the process it involves and in the provision that he ignores But notice verse 17, there's madness in the prayer that he invokes. He says, the residue thereof he maketh a God, even his graven image. Then this is what he does. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, deliver me, for thou art my God. The real folly of it, the real madness of it, is that he'd then turn around and look at this same chunk of wood that he cut down and dragged out of the woods and burned its brother and its cousin and its mama and its daddy when he was making himself a roast and then look at it and say, You are my God, please deliver me. Now, it's easy from where you and I are sitting to snicker at that. But it is no different than when people take the blessings that God has given them in their life their jobs, their finances, their families, the things that God has been good to them in and with and takes those very things and begins to look to those to satisfy them and to satiate them and to give them contentment and to give them peace. Don't you know, hey, it ain't the gift. It's the giver that gives peace. The very fact that we would look to those things to satisfy us is a testimony to the madness of our idolatry. Notice a final thing, and I'm done tonight. In verses 13, 12, 13, and 14, he speaks of the making of the idol, that it's formed by man and fashioned after man and focused on man. Verses 15, 16, and 17, he speaks of the madness of the idol, the madness of the process it involves and the provision it ignores and the prayer it invokes. But then in verses 18, 19, and 20, he speaks of the marring of the idol. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he talks about the effect that that idolatry has on the idolater. You know, here's the truth. We sometimes think that the extent of the damage that our idolatry does is simply the blessings that we miss. But understand that idolatry corrodes the soul. Loving something more than you love Christ will warp your mind. It will wreck your life. It will it will prove corrosive to your heart and to your soul. What did it do to them? Well, notice three results. Verse 18, he points to the blindness of their heart. He says, they have not known nor understood. For he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. You know, the problem with idolatry is it it through pride blinds your heart because you don't want to recognize the folly and the danger of what you're practicing and engaging in. You ever met somebody that there, there's a name for this, and I, I, I don't I don't remember the name of it. Somebody smarter than me can can remember it. But there's a certain there's a certain point in investment and in the equation of, of investment and return, where you look at a bad investment and you cut your losses. Otherwise, you're doing what? And this will be familiar to you. You ever heard of someone throwing good money after bad? Ever heard of somebody doing that? What that means is they make an investment in something. It goes sour, but because they're not willing to accept it has gone wrong, they persist forward pouring more money into it, hoping to right the ship because they can't accept that it was the wrong decision in the first place. Can I tell you that there's the same experience that happens in the human condition and particularly around the matter of idolatry. Oftentimes, man, when we make things the 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 very the very apple of our eye, the very sweetheart of our life, the very most important thing in our hearts and lives. And then all of a sudden we're confronted with the fact that we've wasted all this time and energy and emotional capital upon this thing. Sometimes our pride won't let us come to terms with the fact that we've made such a terrible decision and we'll double down and dive deeper and entrench ourselves in our idolatry instead of repenting of it and turning from it. Oftentimes we'll look at it and say, well, I've put all this time and energy into this person. 
I've put all this time or energy into this job. I've put all this time or energy into this hobby or this pursuit or this ambition. And how, how can I turn away from it? Can I tell you this? That's the reason that if you keep your mind and heart fixed upon Christ, you'll never have to worry about that. He's not a bad investment. You'll never regret the time you've invested in Him. And if you want a real good indicator that something has risen to the status of an idol in your life, just ask yourself, are you hushing the voice of God when He speaks about it? When He begins to put His finger on that thing in your life and say, now, what about this? Do you put your fingers in your ears? Do you close your eyes? Do you close your heart? And you say, now, Lord, we can't talk about that. I just can't, I can't face that, Lord. I can't come to terms with it. Why would that be? Could it be because you've let that thing have an outsized place in your heart? Could it be because you're scared that he's going to make you choose between him and that? And you're scared that you'll choose that and not him. I would say this, the danger with idolatry is the blindness of the heart that it creates. And there's a great many people, this was what I was getting to in the beginning of this point, there's a great many people that if you talk to and you look at their life and it's obvious that they prioritize this thing above Christ, they care more about this than they do anything else, and you'll try to talk to them, you'll try to say this is a problem, it's destructive. They'll look at you as though you are a villain, as though you are attacking that thing. They will lash out at you over that thing. They will other you and non-person you over that thing. They will push you away over that thing. Why? You're threatening their God. That's why. And there's a blindness that has been conditioned into their heart. They can't come to terms with you asking about that matter. They can't come to terms with you saying, don't you think this is too important to you? Don't you think this has become an idol? Don't you think you've put this above the Lord? Because they know they have. And instead, all they can do is lash out and try to push you away. He points to the blindness of their heart. Look at verse 19. He says this, none considereth in his heart Neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination, make it an idol? Then he says this, shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? You understand that uh, mankind is of the highest order of God's creation. You understand that mankind is is at the apex of God's creation. Uh, Listen, the trees aren't made in His image. Animals aren't made in His image. The earth is not made in His image. But you and I, we're made after the image of God. And think about what a disgraceful thing it is that man made in the image of God would fall down to the stalk of a tree and worship it. The Lord is trying to drive home to us how ludicrous is this matter of idolatry. But here's the problem. When he's talking to the idolater, he says there's no knowledge nor understanding to say these things. I would say this. There's not only a blindness of their heart, but there's a brokenness of their mind. They can't think right about what they're doing in their life. You ever met someone that couldn't think right about what they were doing? And I don't mean somebody that was literally mentally ill, although that certainly would, would fall into the same category. But I'm, I'm saying somebody that, that when you talk to them about the decisions that they're making, it was like you couldn't make them see sense. Have you ever known anyone? I guess you've never raised teenagers. You know why? Because when we make something an idol, it warps our mind. All that we're seeing in society, all the weirdness, all the derangeness and derangement about society today is just the product of the corrosiveness of idolatry on the, on the collective human psyche. Mankind has turned from God and it's brought out all sorts of weirdness and debauchery. But you know that happens in your life as well. When you make something more important than Christ, you'll quit thinking straight. You'll start making destructive and damaging decisions in your life. Why? It'll break your mind. But there's even a deeper tragedy, and I'll end on this. Look at verse 20. He says this, He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You know, the problem is the blindness of their heart and the brokenness of their mind. But probably the most tragic and sad of all of it is the barrenness of their soul. At the end of the day, it don't make them happy. At the end of the day, it doesn't satisfy them. They don't sleep any better. They don't wake from their rest any better. They don't have any peace of mind. 
It doesn't give them anything of all of the bargain they thought they were in on. (laughs) The greatest tragedy of all of the devil's lies is he don't never keep any promises. He tells you, if you'll give all these things up, you'll get this in return. Not only will you give up more than you think you're giving up, but you won't even get back in return what he's telling you you'll get back. There's been a great many people... I wouldn't ask anyone to do it, but man, I guarantee you there's people in this room that if given the opportunity could, they could say, Preacher, I did what you're talking about. I made my family my idol in my life and everything was just about pleasing them and placating them, keeping them happy, keeping them from upsetting me. Now they won't return my phone calls. Now they don't want nothing to do with me because at the end of the day, nobody could satisfy them. Nobody could please them. Nobody could keep them happy. Hey, there's people in this room who say, Preacher, I did what you're talking about. I worked a million hours a week. Hey, I took the overtime. I made my job my priority in my life and I made it everything to me. And now here I am and the money that I labored for years for, it ain't worth it anything anymore. What I thought was going to be a good living don't even make ends meet anymore. And now I'm old, I'm broke down, and I'm not invested in the things of God. There's people who could tell you, preacher, I've done it. I've lived for self. I've gone down into the fire country. I've scratched every itch. I've met every need. And it all left me empty and hollow inside. They could tell you they've been down that way and found that it's only ashes. What I'm trying to get you to understand now is before you waste everything God's given you, before you throw away everything that God's blessed you with, before you make shipwreck of your life, I I adjure you to stop and look and do an assessment and say, have I made something an idol in my life? And to stop and to put Christ back on the throne of your heart and to bring your heart in subjection to Him. I beg you to do it before all that's left is ashes. Let's bow together tonight. A musician will come and play. I want to give you an opportunity if God stirred your heart about some matter to meet Him in the altar. There's some coming even now. You won't be the only one. You probably won't be the first one. But if God's touched your heart about something, would you meet Him down here? Hey, that thing may not even be intrinsically bad or it may be intrinsically bad. I'll tell you this, all sin's an idol. All sin is an idol. Even a small sin is an idol. Even a one-time sin is an idol. Even a, I'm never going to do it again, God's sin is an idol. But maybe there's something in your life that in and of itself is not wrong, is not bad, but you've allowed it to become too much in your life. I want to ask you a question. Why are you so afraid of that thing that you're thinking about right now that you don't want to admit you're thinking about? Why are you so afraid of that thing that the Holy Ghost is, is talking to you about and you're saying, no, that's not what he's talking about. He couldn't be talking about that. He couldn't be discussing that. Why are you so afraid of that particular matter? Could it be you've already made it an idol? If God's spoken to you about something, I want you to meet him in this altar. Father, bless this invitation. I ask it in Christ's name. With